0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chatterley in New York. A senseless attack on innocent people trying to escape the war. Earlier today, a rocket struck a train station in Kramatorsk, filled with predominantly women and children. CNN has seen the video of the aftermath of the attack, some of it just so awful we can't show it. Once again, a warning that the images you're about to see are distressing. At least 30 people are known to have lost their lives, including two children. 300 others were injured, according to the government, though those numbers are expected to climb. The local mayor says as many as 4,000 people were waiting at the train station. Images from four days ago show the sheer number of people desperate to escape the violence. And the international condemnation has begun. The president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, calling it an appalling loss of life. Von der Leyen is in Kyiv for talks today with President Zelensky. He addressed Finland's parliament a short while ago and asked, Why do they need to hit civilians with missiles? From the Kremlin, there's been a point-blank denial that Russia is to blame. In fact, it says Ukraine is itself responsible for, quote, provocation. This eastern city was one of the first places to be targeted by the Russian military. And the evidence of alleged war crimes continues to grow. A source telling CNN German intelligence claims to have intercepted radio transmissions of Russian troops talking about killing civilians as well as soldiers. And now Russia is acknowledging significant losses on its side too. In a first-of-its-kind admission, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov called their troop losses a, quote, huge tragedy. This... As British intelligence suggests, Russian forces have now fully withdrawn from northern Ukraine, moving troops into Belarus and Russia. Phil Black is in Lviv for us now. Phil, good to have you with us. What more do we know? We've seen appalling images of this attack on the train station. What do we know in terms of loss of life and and potential injuries, the numbers?
2: yeah, so Julia, the, the initial moments, those distressing, terrifying moments that you showed there, they they passed, and the more recent video shows a scene that has been cleared uh, of the injured, cleared of those who survived, and, and cleared of the dead as well. But there's some structural damage, there is evidence of the human cost, blood on the ground, uh, and so forth. The latest figures that we have still suggest around 30 people were killed hundreds more injured around 300 perhaps we don't know the breakup between adults and children but we do know that from witnesses who were there that the vast number of people there were children and and women uh, it has been noted that some the remains of some of the missile uh, is still there on the site as well uh, there's some writing on it in russian which literally means for the children now, the meaning there isn't absolutely clear, but logically, it's not. It, you'd have to say it doesn't mean that this was intended for the children, but perhaps it was intended as an act of revenge, perhaps, for children, inspired by some alleged suffering that children have experienced. But we don't know precisely what that refers to. And we don't know where that motivation fits in within Russia's uh, extensive uh, uh, disinformation uh, campaign. But there is a... A tremendous irony in those words because if this was an act carried out on behalf of children, in the name of children, it has struck at a site where women and children, almost exclusively, uh, were gathering. Uh, in the hope of fleeing the danger of the ongoing war and moving to somewhere safer in the country. Julie.
1: Yeah, and we've heard on multiple occasions from international bodies, humanitarian organizations, that it's 90% of the people that are trying to leave the country and are being displaced are, are women and children. To your point about w- whatever this means, the implications of this attack, all the more devastating for precisely who's been targeted and and, and what's been devastated in this situation. Um, It also knocks out a key evacuation route, arguably, Phil. I was saying we were showing pictures just then of just the sheer quantity of people that are trying to move in some of the worst affected regions of the violence. And that's now been damaged, you would assume, too, the ability to get people out
2: we understand the strike took place essentially outside the main train station building, in an area where a lot of people were gathering, waiting, hoping to board trains uh, to safer territory. So we haven't had any word that any of the, you know, the, the equipment, the resources, the infrastructure itself has been damaged. So assuming that's true, then there is nothing in theory to stop that key train station continuing uh, its job of, of getting people away from that region. But of course... This will make people feel very uneasy. This will make people feel scared uh, and very nervous about the idea of using that uh, site uh, to escape. If it's been hit once, why couldn't it be hit again? Uh, And so it could still, from that emotive point of view, impact people's willingness uh, to use that key piece of infrastructure to get uh, get out of that dangerous region. And of course, this is really important. There's a real push to get civilians out of the East at the moment because the expectation is that Russia is about to start launching much larger offensive operations there. Officials from the east say they expect this to happen very, very soon. And the longer those civilians stay there, the greater the chance that they could be caught up uh, in the expected intensive fighting that is set to consume that region, Julia.
1: And it just adds to the fear that that people are facing at this moment. Full Black in Lviv, therefore. is Thank you. Now in the port city of Mikolaev, locals are sharing their stories of survival after repeated attacks by Russian forces. SNN's Ben Weidman reports.
3: This has become Mikolaev's daily routine. Picking up the pieces, sweeping away the wreckage from Russian missile attacks. Random shelling throughout the city with what appear to be cluster munitions. Glass shards and shrapnel tore into Marina... As she lies in a hospital, her thoughts are with her teenage daughter, also injured, now at a children's hospital. My daughter and I were caught between two bombs, she recalls. It's a miracle we're still alive. It was terrifying. The hospital where Marina is recovering was hit in the morning. Dirt covers the blood from one of the injured. Closed circuit television video from the city's cancer hospital captures the moment it was struck. Earlier this week, a missile barrage killed nine people and wounded more than 40 at this market. We were able to count 23 impact points in a radius of just 100 meters. And each one of these incoming rounds sprays shrapnel in every direction. Danilo was working in this store and rushed outside when he heard the blasts. Over there, a woman was screaming, help me, her leg was shattered, he says. Behind the store, two people were killed. Dried blood and flowers marked the spot where people died. Last week, a bomb struck the regional governor's office, killing 36 people. Every day in Mykolaiv, this relentless bombardment shatters any semblance of normal life. Mid-afternoon and people line up to escape the danger. This bus bound for Poland. Victoria cradles her one-year-old daughter, Ivanna. Her husband stays behind. Soon we'll be back home, says Victoria. Everything will be all right. How soon that will be, nobody knows. Ben Weidman, CNN, Mikulaev.
1: More EU sanctions on Russia just approved a fifth wave. The new measures sure to add and put pressure on an economy that the U.S. says could contract by 15 percent this year. Ukraine's President Zelensky urging the West to go further, saying today that measures akin to a sanctions Molotov cocktail are required. Claire Sebastian joins us now. Claire, what do we know about the details and the timing, I think, of these latest sanctions?
4: Yeah, Julia, timing is crucial. In terms of the detail, this is pretty much what what was laid out earlier this week by the EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, a full ban on coal imports from Russia. What has changed is the estimate uh, of how much revenue this would deprive Russia of. They're now saying it's 8 billion euros per year, up from 4 billion uh, estimated uh, earlier this week. That's 8.7 billion billion dollars still not not that significant in terms of how much money Russia makes from uh, its energy exports overall but 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 you know it is a hit uh, to one of Russia's main revenue drivers uh, and the other key issue as you said is timing how long will the wind down period be we're hearing from an EU source that that will be about 4 months and that this uh, agreement on ending uh, exports of Russian coal to Europe will take effect in August. So this is clearly a start. This is a sign that, that momentum is building in the EU to, to, to do more, to really, uh, you know, target Russia where it hurts, which is its energy uh, exports. And we know that they do plan to talk further. The uh, EU's top diplomat, Joseph Borrell, who is today in Kiev, said earlier this week that he uh, expects to start discuss it, discussing uh, the potential for an oil embargo on Monday. So that is very significant. Uh, And look, this is what has happened as a result of those horrific scenes coming out of of the likes of Bucha and Berdyanka. I think this attack today on on the city of Kramatorsk will spur further action. I want to bring you a tweet from the EU Council President Charles Michel. He says more action is needed, more sanctions Uh, and more weapons to Ukraine so I think it's clear uh, in Europe that while there is going to be a wind down period for this coal embargo there are many many members uh, of the EU who want to do more.
1: Yes concentrating minds certainly and not before time. On the point of weaponry we were all wondering what came out of the the NATO meeting yesterday and consolidated action perhaps rather than just words of support. What do we know on, on the weaponry front too?
4: Certainly words uh, of support, uh, uh, the uh, NATO chief Jens Stoltenberg saying uh, that, that more needs to be done, heavier weapons uh, as well as light weapons. He, he is not really, he's sort of making the distinction between defensive and offensive weapons. Obviously, this is something that NATO wants to be very careful about since it doesn't want to be considered a combatant in this war. He says all weapons pretty much can be considered defensive since Ukraine is fighting a defensive war. And this is something that uh, the Ukrainian foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba went to Brussels specifically. Specifically to ask for. He said that his key goal was, quote, weapons, 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 and that he came out of these talks cautiously optimistic. In terms of actual action so far, uh, not a great deal. We're hearing from Slovakia uh, this morning that they are going to supply Ukraine with an S-300 Soviet-era uh, air defense system. So, so that is fairly significant. The U.S. Is, is committing more in terms of defensive weaponry as well. But clearly, the commitment is there from NATO members to do more. We just have to see whether this translates into more action, Julia.
1: Yeah, it's the commitment, maybe there. The delivery is what matters. Claire Sebastian, thank you for that. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that making headlines around the world. In Shanghai, health authorities have reported more than 21,000 new COVID cases. That's a daily record, and it pushes the city's total to 130,000, by far China's worst outbreak ever. City officials continue to enforce strict lockdown measures that are making life difficult for millions. CNN's Christy Lou Stout has this report.
5: Shanghai is buckling under a citywide lockdown that has no end in sight. Some residents have reached a breaking point and they are speaking out. On Friday, Shanghai reported over 21,000 new cases of the virus. And as cases rise, China continues to cling to a tough zero COVID policy of mass testing, quarantines and lockdowns. It is taking a toll on both lives and livelihoods. How this video clip has gone viral in China. Listen and watch how this man is venting his frustration in lockdown Shanghai. <laughs> CNN cannot verify the authenticity of the video. And there is also mounting anger over food shortages. This video clip circulating on Chinese social media shows a confrontation between residents under lockdown and police. Uh, the residents are shouting, we are starving as they try to break out of the compound. And again, CNN cannot independently verify the authenticity of the video. On Thursday, the Shanghai government said it is doing its best to improve food distribution. There is also rising anger after a health worker was caught on video beating a pet corgi to death. This happened at a residential compound this week after its owner was reportedly taken to quarantine. A resident filmed a COVID prevention worker hitting the corgi three times with a shovel. The dog died at the scene. Now, CNN has reached out to the residential committee overseeing that compound, and they told local media that the owner would be compensated. Now, these viral video clips underscore the extreme measures taken in the name of zero COVID, and the outcry is only growing. Christy Lou Stout, CNN, Hong Kong.
1: Israeli officials say two people were killed and more than a dozen wounded late Thursday at a bar in Tel Aviv. Security forces say they found and killed the suspected gunman, a 28-year-old from a Palestinian city in the west. It's the latest in a string of attacks that have put Israel and the Palestinian territories on edge. Pakistan's Supreme Court has ruled that Prime Minister Imran Khan's efforts to block a vote of no confidence were unconstitutional. Earlier this week, President Khan moved to dissolve Parliament ahead of a vote against him. That vote is now set to take place tomorrow. Straight ahead, five rounds of sweeping EU sanctions, yet President Putin seems defiant as ever. French Finance Minister Bruno Le Maire joins us now on Ukraine's fight for its future. That's next. Welcome back. The world reacting in horror to the latest attack on innocent civilians looking to flee the fighting in eastern Ukraine. Ukraine now says at least 39 people have been killed, some 87 injured in this rocket strike at a train station in the Donetsk region. Ukraine's foreign minister now warning that the anticipated conflict in and around the Donetsk region could be equal to World War II in terms of intensity. NATO this week agreeing to send new advanced weaponry to Ukrainian fighters, allowing them to meet the Russian onslaught head-to-head in this new phase of the fighting. The EU is pledging more than $500 million more dollars in additional support to Kyiv. It's also passed a new round of economic sanctions that target Russia's energy and financial sectors. The economic game-changer would be for a complete EU ban on Russian oil and gas imports. The French finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, has urged the EU to pass an energy ban within a few weeks, although he admits himself it would take time to build consensus among EU member states. And I'm pleased to say the French finance minister joins us now. Minister, great to have you on the show. I want to get your reaction to begin on the attack that we saw this morning on Ukrainian civilians.
6: I think that we are all deeply shocked by this uh, new massacre after Bucha, I mean all the French public opinion, all the European public opinions are deeply shocked by uh, what uh, happened. This is a massacre. It means that uh, the people responsible for that must be identified, prosecuted, and uh, possibly convicted for these crimes. And it is up to the criminal court of justice to take the lead on that and to uh, take the necessary decisions.
1: Does a massacre, in your words, like this justify further sanctions? Minister, beyond the fifth round that was just agreed, you yourself have said France is ready to ban oil imports, but you're waiting for others. In the face of tragedies like this, more tragedies like this, why wait?
6: We don't want to wait. We just want to have European unity on this ban on russian oil but have a look first of all on what has been already decided we have already decided very strong sanctions at the european level this is the set of sanctions the most um, heavy that we have decided since the creation of the european union Uh, we have decided a ban on some russian products we have decided to put under sanctions oligarchs uh, Political uh, responsible. We have also decided a ban on some very specific technological products. So we have already taken very strong decisions. Now it's time to move on. And President Macron made very clear that as France is concerned, we stand ready to decide a ban on coal and on oil. On coal, it has been decided yesterday at the European level. On oil, We want to build a consensus among the 27 member states because we need the unity of the 27 member states to decide this ban on oil. A ban on oil, on Russian oil, would be clearly a game changer in the way we are responding to uh, the Russian attacks against Ukraine. That's why we are fully determined to go this way, but once again, we need to build the European unity.
1: Oil, as you mentioned, is the game changer. I want to ask about coal just specifically. There are reports today that coal imports will be banned from the second week of August, that no new contracts can be signed from today. Can you confirm that, sir, for me, please?
6: I can confirm that. We we need to to have four months of uh, adaptation because of the contract. But the ban on coal will be decided. There is the unity of the 27 member states. This is a new step in the way we are responding to the Russian attack. And uh, I just want to recall that, as France is concerned, we stand ready to go further and to decide a ban on oil. And I'm deeply convinced convinced that the next steps and the next discussions will focus on this question of the ban on Russian
7: oil.
1: 34 billion euros is what Joseph Borrell said. The European Union has paid to Russia since the beginning of this invasion and the confirmation last night that 1.5 billion euros has been given to Ukraine in terms of support and in terms of weaponry, 34 billion euros to Russia, one and a half billion euros to Ukraine. Minister, you're saying France, the French people are ready to do this. For, For nations that aren't yet ready, Germany would be a great example, the biggest example. How do they justify that to their people?
6: I think that, uh, once again, building unity takes time. Uh, we should, first of all, focus on what has been already decided. The strong sanctions that have been decided against Russia prove to be very uh, effective. Just have a look at the level of uh, growth in Russia. You have a very strong recession, more than 10%, as President Biden said uh, a few uh, days ago. Uh, we want to go further. And what we have decided is already effective, but we want to go further. We also provided 1.2 billion euros of financial support to Ukraine. Mm. We have also decided to provide military equipments to the Ukraine government. You just have a look at, at the things and at the way we are changing in Europe. This is the first time in the recent European history that the 27 member states decide to provide military equipments to a foreign country. This is already a game changer. The way we are fighting against the Russian state and against Vladimir Putin through these very strong sanctions, this is already a game changer in the way Europe is behaving. We are united, we are strong, and we stand ready to go further to uh, be successful through this political of uh, sanctions.
1: Is Hungary on board with sanctioning energy, like oil imports, Hungry, Hungary?
6: Hungary, Hungary, is on, Hungary is on board, because to have uh, those decisions uh, being implemented, you need the unity of the 27 member states, which means that all the 27 member states, including Hungary, must be on board. It was uh, the case for the sanctions against oligarchs, for the sanctions on coal. It must be the case also the day we will decide a ban on Russian oil.
1: And does that come this year?
6: We, we will see. I cannot uh, make any uh, prediction, but uh, I think that President Macron made very clear that we have to go further, that all options are on the table. Coal, it has been decided. Oil, we stand ready for that. Gas, this is already on the table. All options are on the table because we are fully aware of what is happening in Ukraine. We are all deeply shocked by uh, what has happened in Bucha and in this uh, railway station. And we are totally determined to uh, have these sanctions being implemented, being effective, and having a very concrete effect on the Russian power.
1: Speaking of the effect, uh, could you confirm something else for me, please? Russia has been demanding that payment for energy from unfriendly nations uh, comes in rubles. Has anything changed about the way that you're paying and the way that the EU is paying for energy uh, and hydrocarbons to Russia? No,
6: it, it did not change the way we, we, we pay for our contracts. Contracts are contracts. And right. contracts in euros must be paid and will be paid in euros so we will continue to pay our contracts with uh, russia in euros
1: and i want to pick up on your point about the weaponry that's been provided to ukraine and nato also announced yesterday more advanced weaponry will be provided to to ukraine too are you confident is france confident that ukraine now has the weaponry required to resist an advance that the foreign minister said yesterday could be reminiscent of violence in world war ii
6: you know, I'm not in charge of the Minister of Defense, so I don't want to enter into too much details. But the point on which I would like to insist is that for the first time in the history of the European Union, we have decided to provide military equipments to a foreign country to support this country, to support Ukraine, to support the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian people. So this is clearly a game changer in the European history. And you have all the European countries, uh, including uh, countries uh, like uh, Sweden, including countries like uh, Germany, providing these military equipments to uh, Ukraine.
1: Minister, uh, I apologize for asking you outside of your remit. These are extraordinary circumstances. Um, It is important France's stance on all of this as you head towards presidential elections and the runoffs and the polls have tightened Uh, for France and for Europe. I think the outcome of this presidential election has profound implications. Marine Le Pen, very different views on on European security, on, on Europe, on the future of France, on a position on Russia and Ukraine itself. What's at stake in this election for both France and for Europe?
6: I fully agree on your assessment. This presidential election will have a deep impact on the European history and will have deep implications also on the European policy. That's why I so much strongly uh, support the re-election of uh, Emmanuel Macron, because I really think that to ensure European unity, you need to have Emmanuel Macron as the next French president. If you want to stick to that policy against the Russian state, against Vladimir Putin, You need to have Emmanuel Macron being re-elected. We don't want to have any ambiguity vis-à-vis the Russian state, vis-à-vis the Russian oligarchs, vis-à-vis the Russian banks and vis-à-vis Vladimir Putin. There are some ambiguities among some other candidates. It is not the case with Emmanuel Macron. He has been very clear from the very beginning on the necessity of preserving European unity. He has been very clear on the necessity to fight against the Russian policy vis-a-vis Ukraine. So I think that what is at stake in this presidential election, the first one will take place next Sunday, is the European unity, the determination of the European Union to fight against uh, the Russian state and the Russian decisions in Ukraine, and the possibility of having all European continents being more independent, more sovereign, investing in military equipments and being able to face the stakes of the 21st centuries.
1: Minister, are you confident he can win? Yes or no?
6: I'm totally confident that he can win. I'm confident that he will win. And I will do my best efforts over the next days to convince the French population that this is in the interest of France, to have Emmanuel Macron being elected. Just have a look at the results of Emmanuel Macron's mandate. You have the unemployment rate going down. You have the attractiveness of the French state and the French nation going up. You have more jobs. You have more industrial jobs. You have more influence of France among European countries. This is why I strongly believe that Emmanuel Macron is the best choice for the next five years.
1: The French people will decide. So thank you for your time today, and I appreciate you answering questions outside thank you. uh, of your remit. Bruno Le Maire there, the Finance Minister of France. Now coming up, she made a dangerous trip to Kiev just last week to meet President Zelensky. The leader of the European Parliament joins us next. <laughs> Welcome back. A Russian strike hit a train station in the eastern Ukrainian city of Kramatorsk earlier Friday. We must warn you, these images are disturbing to see. At least 39 people were killed, many others injured. According to the railway company, thousands of people, civilians, were waiting to board trains to take them out of what's seen now as a very dangerous area. Meanwhile, President Vladimir Zelensky saying the situation in the town of Borodyanka looks even worse than Bucha.
6: So far, the Russian state and the Russian military are the greatest threat on the planet to freedom, to human security, to the concept of human rights as such.
8: After Bucha, this is clear they don't obey human rights. But now we see it in Borodionga after. It's even scarier. Even more bodies under the rubble in Borodionga.
1: The head of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, arrived in Kyiv today to meet with President Zelensky. It comes after the president of the European Parliament, Roberta Metzola, also made the trip to the mm-hmm. Ukrainian capital last week to meet with the president herself. And she joins us now. Um, president Metzola, great to have you on the show. Um, the first European to visit Kyiv, to visit Thanks Ukraine in light of the violence. Um, your reaction, please, to, to what we've seen this morning.
7: yeah this uh, these photos are really quite uh, terrible and it's the message if i can say of hope that you see in a baby carriage uh, in the suitcases of people fleeing atrocities in an unprovoked and unnecessary and uh, terrible war in the hope of finding a better life children's lives cut short mothers and children women and men bombed indiscriminately what we are seeing there are crime scenes, international war crimes being committed against a sovereign people who are simply fighting for democracy and for their country.
1: Roberta, do you think it hardens the minds, the focus of European leaders to do more, to take further action, however painful perhaps it is for their own citizens? I don't think we have any choice.
7: Uh, The reason why I travelled to Kiev last week was precisely to speak uh, to my counterparts uh, in the Ukrainian parliament, but then also with President Zelensky, because I wanted to be in the same room and say, we are not going to leave you alone. We will never ever do that and we will never forget what has happened and what Russia has done uh, to your country. Uh, These images and what we've seen over these past few days leave us with no choice but to continue to insist, first of all, that Ukraine is fighting our war for the same principles of democracy, fundamental freedoms, liberty and justice, while at the same time we are not yet delivering equipment fast enough, we are not yet delivering financial assistance and logistical assistance fast enough. We are in a crucial period uh, in this very, very difficult uh, invasion. And it is up to us today, in these hours, to stand up, to be counted, really, and not turn our backs.
1: You know, I often think about this um, in light of the numbers, and I've repeated them many times on my show this week. But you actually know what it feels like to look President Zelensky in the eye and know that Europe's providing... 34 billion euros to Russia for energy that could be and can be used for weapons while providing one and a half billion euros to Ukraine for, for weapons and, and humanitarian aid and support. Roberta, just as a as an individual, even as a representative of the European Parliament, but as a, an individual person, how does it feel to, to look in the eyes of, of President Zelensky knowing that?
7: Well, the reality is that uh, we are, whether directly or indirectly, funding this war. And we have funded uh, a neighboring uh, country uh, which was preparing attacks that is uh, unpredictable, that is aggressive, that does not respect international law, that does not respect human rights, that silences the opposition and any minority and looking away. And we have to look at ourselves with responsibility and say, why did did we not act earlier? Why have we sheltered Putin, his family, the oligarchs and all, all the people who support him in our Europe by selling them our passports, our citizenship, by allowing them to hide their money in our countries? And we need to make sure that this does not happen again. And this is why yesterday the European Parliament took the decision to ask for an immediate embargo also on gas besides coal and oil. Why did we do this? Because politically we cannot look at our citizens in the eyes and say we fight for democracy in our countries but we turn our back when a country so close to us with our brothers and sisters fighting for those same principles are doing precisely that. They are difficult decisions. We will have very difficult weeks ahead of us, if not months. We will face food shortages. We will face stratospheric energy um, and gas prices. But at the same time, democracy and freedom are priceless. And if we depart from that principle, we need to be ready at the leadership level to make those sacrifices, allow our citizens um, the protection that they need to cushion the economic impact. But at the same time, never look away from the fact that we are fighting for the lives of Europeans that we thought, my generation thought, would never see war in our Europe, let alone in 2022.
1: Yeah, Europe proved it can do whatever it takes in the financial crisis and during the Covid pandemic. And I think to your point, we have to look look at this seriously as a far bigger crisis than just one country and and the implications for Europe too. I want to ask you about the candidacy for for Ukraine. I know adding another nation to the European Union is convoluted. This has been discussed many times, but can you give me any sense of, of timeline because even just candidacy for the EU would open up a number of programs that would be very useful to Ukraine at this moment?
7: absolutely this is in fact uh, or in fact dominated my discussions in Kiev uh, mm. last week uh, with the advantages that once the first step is taken and uh, um, uh, the candidacy is opened then con- then young people um, uh, different parts of the country can access so many so-called pre-accession funds in other words funds that and programs that uh, a country would be able to access before it becomes a member of the European Union and the Parliament's position has been very clear yeah any country that looks to Europe uh, at its ho- as its home. Uh, we have seen uh, our homes and our hearts being opened uh, widely over the past few weeks uh, in countries, uh, both in the neighboring region, but really across the continent in order uh, to welcome uh, fleeing uh, Ukrainians, uh, something they never wanted to do, but we are doing it on the ground in a great human- humanitarian uh, effort. Now we also need to Take the political step that if that country is looking to Europe, then Europe needs to say that Europe is your home. There are different steps. Each country has its own path. Ukraine has started its path. It's up to us now to respond to that. And that will happen over the next few days. But for the parliament, it's clear the place of Europe uh, Ukraine is in Europe.
1: President Metzola. Thank you for your time and thank you for your bravery in visiting Ukraine too. The President of the European Parliament Thank there. you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Still to come. Meet the 88-year-old woman who stood strong when Russian troops invaded her city. Her story, next. Welcome back to a remarkable show of strength. Ukrainian troops, along with residents young and old, fought off the Russian forces, which invaded in early March. One 88 year old woman had a few choice words for the Russian soldiers who showed up. Take a listen to this.
8: Та його, свою мать, каже, що Путін той здурів, ти що, каже. Застрілили дитину, та що такі попалися хороші. Каже, що то, то, той Путін здурів,
1: та сука він, та би він знову. Каже, дітки, куди ви прийшли? Зараз я й кажу їй. And Ed Lavendera joins us now. Ed, you know, and I watched this, and this is part of a much bigger report that that people should watch too. It was a combination of smiling and, and crying for what they've been through, but oh boy, that woman's a firecracker.
8: Yep. Uh, you know, what's really funny about all that is that I knew it was funny, but I was waiting for the translation to really understand exactly what was going on. So, But I could tell in whatever she was saying in that moment, it was going to be really profound and dramatic. But this is part of a bigger story, as you mentioned, Julia. Yeah. This was a uh, a battle that happened in a, in a city about two hours north of Odessa, where we are in south-central Ukraine. And it's a little town called, and I, bear with me on pronouncing the name, Voznyashensk is the name of the city. And... This is a, was a two-day battle in early March. Russian forces about, uh, you know, coming toward this city. There's a river that runs through it. The Ukrainians there blew up the bridge so that the Russians couldn't get in. And where that 88-year-old woman was, was on an outskirt village on the road that the Russians came to. And she... Told that, what she's referring to there is that when the Russians first pulled into the city, they came through her village, and one of the soldiers drove a tank basically through her yard. And that was her response to the Russian soldier when he pulled into her yard, and, and she just gave him that verbal tirade.
1: Did, did she tell you how he reacted? How the, how the soldiers reacted?
8: Well, um, that street, we, what we found on that street where she is, was a lot of elderly women. And um, they reacted by basically kicking all of the women out of their homes. They had to go find other places to live while the Russians were there in, in the occupied section of the city. And they basically robbed their homes of food and, and clothing and, and, and various supplies. But we should point out that. Uh, That battle lasted for about two days. And in this incredible combination of Ukrainian military, volunteer fighters, crafty civilians who were basically running supplies, acting as spotters, telling them where the Russians were in the neighborhood, they were able to beat them back. And the city is particularly um, important because it kind of sits at a crossroads in south-central Ukraine. If they had made it across this river, um, and into that city, uh, the Russian forces would have been uh, able to move deeper into southern Ukraine. So if you look back at the timing of all of this back in early March, and if you've followed the story here about how Russian forces essentially have been stalled out halfway between Mariupol and Odessa in the south, this city is, is, is responsible for, partly responsible for that in, in large part. So that's why this particular battle here was so significant
1: the heart the bravery the strength um yes that story has it all and to your point about the laughter too you could see them laughing by the side and sort of a little bit embarrassed <laughs> yeah i think she's earned the right to to swear like a trooper if she wants to <laughs> um and ed on the final point on that you know, um, and you'll and, note- and we asked him them- go on
8: no, I was just saying, you know, I also asked them if they're worried about the Russians coming back. All this talk yeah. about, you know, on a serious note of Russians coming in from the east, if they're worried that they're going to come back and take revenge, will they stay? She, you know, they told us, we're not going anywhere. I said, why won't you evacuate? And they said over and over again, where will we go? We have nowhere to go. This is, this is our home. Um, you know, but those are some rather fierce ladies there in that neighborhood, in that village.
1: These ladies not for moving. Ed, thank you. Ed Blavendara. Great to have you with us. Global Financial Markets wrapping up another turbulent week with the war in Ukraine and the Fed's battle against inflation still weighing on sentiment. Take a look at this. U.S. shares lower in early trading, pressured by benchmark U.S. bond yields that have risen to fresh three-year highs. Yields are rising as key members of the U.S. Federal Reserve vow to aggressively reduce the Fed's balance sheet, a move that Deutsche Bank fears will lead to a U.S. recession as soon as next year. Investors begin to hear from Wall Street's biggest banks next week too on their Q1 results and their projections for economic growth and, of course, the global implications of higher food prices and inflation. Now, in a space first, tourists are blasting off for the International Space Station later on Friday. At the Kennedy Space Station in Florida, three paying customers and a former astronaut are getting set for liftoff in a SpaceX rocket, though on a 10-day mission. It's an inaugural voyage of the commercial space flight company Axiom Space. Rachel Klein is there. You know, it's interesting when blast-offs start to become a little bit boring and a little bit normal. This one's different, Rachel, for many reasons these people get to stay there for several days and carry out experiments. Talk us through this.
9: That's right, Julia. Well, let me just bring you up to speed on where the mission is right now. The astronauts are strapped into their seats. They are in the capsule. They closed the hatch, but they had to reopen it because the seal the pressure check, unfortunately, it, it, it did not pass. So they had to reopen that hatch, close it again. They're going through the leak checks once again. Uh, hopefully, all will, will check out, uh, but of course, safety is uh, but we are hopefully going to be having an 1117 launch today. But what's so unique about this mission, Julia, is this has never been done before. It's a first of its kind. All of the astronauts on board are private astronauts. Space station for about eight days. Now, they're not just going to be up there having a good time and taking in the, v- in the views, which, but of course they will be doing that. They're going to be running about uh, 25 experiments on board with the Mayo Clinic, the Cleveland Clinic, also the Canadian...
1: Okay, I think we've lost Rachel Crane there. Give it a few seconds while I let you watch ahead of this launch. But as she was saying, this is an Axiom SpaceX and NASA combined operation. They're going to spend eight days, I believe, orbiting the laboratory managed by a team of international government-backed agencies. Rachel, have we managed to reestablish connection?
9: Rachel, can you hear me? Oh yes, yeah, sorry, Julia. We're having a few technical difficulties here. I don't know where you lost me, but I was walking you through uh, what w- what has been happening so far. The crew—they're in that capsule. They're suited up. They're strapped into their seats, and uh, we are hoping for an 11:17 uh, launch today. Uh, but unfortunately, there was a leak with the hatch. They had to reopen that hatch. They've closed it again. They're going through those leak checks. But you know, this is really a first of its kind mission, Julia, because. They, these are all private astronauts on board uh, this this flight today, and they will be taking in the views, of course, once they make it to the International Space Station about 20 hours after their launch, but they will also be conducting about 25 experiments. So they really, these these uh, private astronauts, they are insistent on the fact that they are not quote-unquote tourists, but uh-huh. they are private astronauts conducting incredibly important uh, science on board, and hopefully this launch will take off today, Julia, we are all eagerly awaiting.
1: Yes, fingers crossed. I have 20 seconds. Rachel, how much did they pay for a seat on the rocket very quickly?
9: Well, all I can tell you, it was definitely more than I can afford, Julia, and most people can afford. <laughs> okay. uh, the rumored price I'm tag is again. about Two $55 million. Dollars, but, oh, yeah. Okay. Axiom has not confirmed that, but that's the rumor, $55 million, Julia. Done.
1: Rachel, great to chat to you. Thank you. We're both getting into trouble here. That's it for the show. Stay with CNN. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. We'll see you on Monday.